couple announcements as we carry on with our service. First, if you're new to our community or you've been a long time part of our community, but you're looking to get more involved, we'd love to connect with you. You can go to lakeviewchurch.com slash connect. There's a quick form that'll help us figure out how we can connect together. Also, this is an announcement for everybody in our whole community. This coming Saturday, there is a Lakeview offsite event. And this is for those of you with young families, with kids, those of you with older kids who are teenagers, or those of you of all sorts of stages of life. We welcome you to come join with us. We're going to head to the Rostern Youth Farm Corn Maze, and we're going to hang out together. It's going to be happening this coming, this coming Saturday. You can register online at our website. All right, like I promised earlier, we are going to give you a bit of a financial update this morning. And we like to do this every few months or so uh, because... This is our church. This is your church. And we want to keep you informed as to how we are doing. And there might be some of us who might prefer not to talk about money, especially in church. But the truth is our our finances are an important part of how we work together to achieve our mission as a church. So let's start by just taking a look at what our budget is going to look like for this fiscal year. So our budget is going to come in at just under $1.5 million for the year ahead. And you'll you'll see that there's a few different um, categories that are broken down there. And I just want to highlight that the majority of our budget is dedicated to the wages of our staff and the people who help make our ministries happen and our ministries and the missional work that we do. So the majority of our funds goes towards our team. It goes towards our staff. And it goes towards helping make things happen, like Lakeview Kids and Lakeview Youth, Lakeview Young Adults, Sunday mornings like today, Home Church, as well as all of our Serve Local and Serve Global initiatives. So we, uh, we feel good about the budget that we put together. The finance team and the board have helped us shape that, and this is going to guide us as we work together to allocate our resources well for the season ahead. So let's take a look at like how our donations have been tracking over recent months. Obviously, donations make up the vast majority of our finances. We are able to generate some revenue through rentals, but donations are obviously the lifeline of our church financially. So here's what's the summer look like this past year compared to years previous. As you can see, July and August of this past year were really strong, and we're really encouraged by that. Now, when we scale it out a little bit further and we look at how have the past 12 months compared to previous years, you'll see that there's a little bit of a dip compared to previous years. Overall, very steady, very strong, um, not not an alarming drop-off, but it's something that we're paying attention to. Now, obviously, donations are the result of the activity of donors, So let's just talk a little bit about, like, how has our donor base looked uh, recently? Uh, So when we look at the past 12 months, and we again scale that back over previous years, you'll start to see, here's where a bit of a story is developing. So we had 328 different households give to Lakeview in the past 12 months. And as you can see, that's been a, a slide. It's been skidding over the past couple years. So I actually just want to take a quick moment, though, and just say, if you are among those 328, thank you. Thank you very much for your generosity and for your faithful giving. Uh, Pre-authorized debit and recurring credit donations are like a really core part of our donor base. This is something that we pay really close attention to because in many ways it provides sort of a foundation for our donor base. And over the past few years, this has been something we've really emphasized and we've been paying attention to. And what you'll see is that for a number of years, we saw such increase in this area and it was something that we celebrated. And I would just say quite honestly, as a finance team and as a board, we recognized as COVID hit us hard, we really felt like the fact that our recurring donor base had grown in previous years really allowed us to to weather the storm of the pandemic. But you will notice that since the beginning of this year, it's starting to tail off slightly. And some people have let us know um, that they've made changes to their giving. Some people have moved away, which happens. Some people have had changes in their sort of like situation in life, which happens. And we have had a few people let us know 
that they are they're moving on from Lakeview, which is also not a huge surprise given all that's kind of happening in culture and in the world right now. So this is something that we are also paying close attention to and something we invite you to pay attention to as well. So then right now, as we are like entering into the heart of our ministry season, what's ahead? Like this is an, ex- <clears throat> excuse me, this is an exciting season. All of our ministries are like up and running. And like people are re-engaging in church life, which is fantastic. We're so excited. We can gather together on Sunday mornings. And there's so many good things that are to come. Home churches are all going to start up soon. This is exciting. And so we are also entering into a significant stretch of our financial year. So our fiscal year runs from the beginning of July through to the end of June. And so we're about to enter into our quarter two. And, and what you'll see is that like from October to December, that is a significant time where we bring in 40% historically of our donations. So in order to hit our budget over the next few months, from October through to the end of December, we need to bring in about $450,000 worth of donations, which might sound overwhelming to some of us, but this is totally on track with what we've done in previous years And as a community, we have consistently stepped up to the plate, and I'm confident that we will step up again in this season. And I I will say, and it it might sound trite, but it is not at all. It actually reflects the heart of how we handle our finances as a church. But we trust God is going to take care of us. We believe God will provide what we need. We will not enter into a scarcity mindset. We will not operate in fear God has provided for us all the way through the 100 years of our church's story, and we believe God is going to continue to provide in the season ahead. So, uh, wrapping things up. So, what is next for each of us? How do we all personally respond to this news? Well, the first thing, I would invite everyone in our community to find some time this week to simply pause, pray, and reflect on your giving to Lakeview. Take some time to think about the ways you give, how much you give, how often you give. And I invite you to just open up some space for the Spirit to speak into that area of your life. And then I would encourage you to talk about it. To like find some people to actually talk about this with. The people you live with. Or talk about it with people you trust from our church. It would... It would be good for us to talk about these matters. And if you'd like to talk about any of these matters, I would be available. Our pastors are available to talk about this. And sometimes we feel like, oh, but you're not really supposed to talk about finances. But I believe this is one of the ways that we participate in God's kingdom. We talk about the ways we volunteer. We talk about the things we are learning. We talk about ways we can pray for each other. I really think it's okay for us to talk together about the ways that we give to our church. And then finally, we encourage you to either keep giving or start giving. And if you are among those who have been giving consistently and generously over this past year, I am not here to push you into giving more. But I I do hope that there are maybe some among our community who would consider this to be a nudge, an opportunity to consider perhaps this is the time to start giving regularly or to, help, to start giving more generously to our church. And I, and I just want to be clear. This is, not, this is not a message of obligation or guilt or pressure. In, in fact, as I was reflecting on this, as, as I represent a household, I'm one of those 328. And for Tara and I, there are, are really two primary reasons why we give consistently to Lakeview. First off, we know that holding our money loosely before God, it is good. It does good things for our soul and our spirit and our formation. And the more that we learn to be generous, the more we are learning to trust in God rather than our own bank account balance. But the second thing is, we believe in the good work that God is doing here at Lakeview. And we are convinced that as we give to this community, God is multiplying all of our resources together to accomplish important work in our world. And we know that many of you feel the same, so we just invite you to join in and to give with us. 
So as always, there are several ways you can give. On Sunday mornings, you can give at the give boxes or at the info desk. You can give by texting 84321. You can give online at lakeviewchurch.com slash give. And online is where you can do a one-time donation. Or if you want to set up recurring credit donations, that's where you can do that. If you'd like to set up pre-authorized debit donations, contact the office. We'd love to help you set that up. And if you have any questions at all about finances, I, I am totally available. You can reach out to me, find me in the lobby, or email curtis at lakeviewchurch.com, and I'd love to talk with you about these things. All right. Before Carissa comes and brings us the message for the morning, uh, we are continuing to emphasize spiritual practices as a church community. And in this month, we're encouraging our community to read your Bible. And so Allison has put together a brief video with a little bit of explanation on how we can understand translations of the Bible. So I'm going to play that video, and then Carissa is going to come and lead us. Hi, Lakeview. This month for our practice we are inviting you to read your Bible. You'll remember that last week, I gave you a couple of tips for if you're new to reading the Bible, you can read a Psalm a day, you can start in the stories of Jesus, or you can start reading the stories that we're exploring in our teaching this fall. But if you've made the decision to read your Bible, the first thing you'll probably notice when you start reading is that your Bible doesn't match other people's Bibles. So let's say you all gather with a bunch of people here and all of you present bring the Bible that you have available to you. The one you read every day or the one your father-in-law gave you or the one passed down by your grandparents. And I said, let's open to Genesis chapter 1. We all open our Bibles together and turn to the same passage if you looked over the shoulder of your seatmate, most of us would find that the words on the page of their Bible would not match the words of the page on our Bible. The ideas on the page might match, but the words don't. And that's because there are different translations of scripture. You see, the original books of the Bible were not written in English, so every time we read a passage of scripture, we are reading a translation of the original. And while the history of translations is too long and detailed to get into in a short video, I do have a couple of tips for you when choosing a translation. The translations exist on a spectrum. On the one end of the spectrum, the translations attempt to be word-for-word -word translations of the Greek and Hebrew texts. They take the shortest leap from Greek or Hebrew to English, and they let you carry more of the load when it comes to interpreting the words. On the other end of the spectrum, the translators seek to make their versions more readable, and so they do a lot of the heavy lifting for you. They translate more thought for thought rather than word for word. And along the whole spectrum, there are translations that hold these things in tension, sometimes emphasizing readability, sometimes sticking as close to the original languages as possible. The good news is that almost all translations are good ones. So if you've had one that you've been reading from and you love, then just keep at it. But if you need some advice on which translation to choose, here are some recommendations for middle of the spectrum reads. The New Living Translation and the New International Version are really good options. If you're looking for a translation that is super close to the original languages, that seeks to make that leap from Greek and Hebrew to English the shortest, the NRSV is a good option. And on the other end of the spectrum, where it's super readable and there's not a lot of translating to do, is the message, which we often use in our preaching because the language is really accessible. We often jump between versions as a preaching team because some versions highlight what it is we want to highlight for our teaching, but mostly you'll hear us preaching from the New Living Translation or the message. Now, another way to read your Bible, for those of you who are more digital than analog, is to find a great Bible app. I've used several in my day, but if you need a place to start, here are two that I would recommend. 
Read Scripture from the Bible Project has a daily reading plan and also has amazing information and videos on the context of the passage you're reading. It focuses on how each story of scripture fits into the overall plot of Jesus coming to redeem and renew the earth. I recently also started using YouVersion, a Bible app that has all kinds of reading plans, videos, and even guided daily prayer. It will also keep a record of your streaks to motivate you if that's your jam. Our practice of reading scripture has to be doable and it has to be sustainable. So remember that as you begin or continue in your practice. Start with what you can do rather than what you can't. And if you lose inertia, just get back up and start again. You have your whole life to learn to do this. So let's get started. That is who you are, Lord Jesus. You are our way maker. You are our miracle worker. You are our promise keeper. You are a light in the darkness. You are a bright morning star. You are our creator. You are the one who sets prisoners free. Thank you for the ways that you have revealed yourself this week in the events of our lives, in the events of our city, in our life together at Lakeview, in our country, in our world. Help us not to be lulled to sleep, Lord, thinking that you are too busy with other things, thinking that you are unable or uninterested or unpresent, not present. We acknowledge you we name you as one who is present. And together we say, Lord, hear our prayers. Thank you, Lord, that you are present in our beginnings the beginnings of our days when it is still dark and the sun begins to send its rays across the horizon, at the beginnings of a new job, of new tasks, of new relationships, a new home, a new season. And thank you, Lord, that you are beginning, you're present in our endings. As at the end of the day, as the light fades, at the end of summer, as the leaves are igniting like they're on fire. At the end of something we love and wish could continue forever. At the end of something we hated and longed for it to be behind us. You are present in our beginnings and in our endings. And we hold these before you this morning. together. Lord, hear our prayers. So we ask you for wisdom and for strength as we look forward, Lord. We pray for wisdom to know where you lead us, to know the ways that you are inviting us to join you as you make things new. We pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds to your ways in this world, and open our hearts and our minds to your words spoken into, spoken into our lives this morning. And together we say, Lord, hear our prayers. Amen. Good morning, friends. I'm just going to see where you all are. Hi, guys. <laughs> uh, my name's Carissa. Uh, and we have such an interesting story ahead of us today. Today, we get to wonder about the character of Hagar. 
I was really, really excited to draw this straw. I had nothing to do with uh, how things played out, but I was really excited when I got uh, the character of Hagar. If you'll recall, we're in a series right now called Restart, stories of those who, like us, had to begin again. And the character of Hagar definitely fits the bill. In fact, over the course of her story, Hagar faces a restart more than once. Her story has compelling things to offer about who God is in our restarts, but it's also a story arc that fits into some larger arcs. One of those larger arcs is the story of Abraham. Uh, Hagar comes into Abraham's story when he's still Abram, and when he's still figuring out what it means to have been chosen or elected to be in covenant with Yahweh. And the even larger arc that encompasses Abraham, his wife Sarah, Hagar, and the kids that emerge from these three is God's big story, the long mercy, the one that God is telling throughout scripture and that is still being told. The one that Allison has talked about the last couple of weeks that goes, God creates, we mess it up, or it gets messed up, and God redeems. God has redeemed and is still redeeming. Isn't that great news? Okay, so Hagar. What became really tricky this week was not to get distracted by the stories of the other characters that show up in Hagar's life. There are lots of interesting moments that surface for Abraham and Sarah and even Ishmael, Hagar's son, in this narrative. Uh, but I'm going to try really hard to stay with the experience of Hagar, to view this restart uh, through her eyes, kind of like... Um, have any of you seen the movie Knives Out that came out um, recently? Um, so the film actually tells the same story a few times over, and each time from a different character's point of view. So different details rise to the surface, um, and the viewer discovers new things based on whose point of view they're watching the story from. Well, today is Hagar's day. We're viewing the story through Hagar's eyes, and that means... We're going to have to leave some of the juicy details out that would require us to shift our point of view. The beautiful thing about studying narrative texts in scripture is that they invite us to wonder. The invitation of scripture written as narrative is to be drawn into the story. And here's a little teaser about Hagar's story that should pique our interest immediately. Aside from Hagar, no one else in the Old Testament ever names God. And no other woman in the Old Testament, in fact, I read uh, somebody wrote that um, no other woman in the entirety of ancient Near Eastern literature is ever addressed by God or by a deity by name. No other woman. Intrigued? Another heads up. It's going to be super tempting to judge Hagar and the other characters in this story as essentially good or essentially bad. But rather than exacting that kind of judgment or trying to sort of extract a moral of the story from her, rather than turning this thing into a flannel graph Sunday school lesson, we're going to let Hagar tell her story and then we're going to wonder together. We'll chew on the words of scripture and ask God to show us wisdom. Okay? Are you with me? Okay. Let's let curiosity guide us. And let's let Hagar's encounters with God help us long for God more. The background we need to know as we begin is back in Genesis 12, God called Abram and sent him out from his home promising that he would be made into a great nation. And in chapter 15, God has just made a covenant with Abram in which God promises um, Abram's heir. Um, he makes promises about Abram's heir and the land and the, that his offspring will inhabit. 
But as Hagar's story begins in chapter 16, we find Abram and his wife Sarai have not been able to conceive. And they're getting kind of old. So let's start reading. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, look, she is your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. Hagar is an Egyptian, and she is Sarai's maidservant. So Sarai is the top woman, the one in charge of the whole of Abram's household, and Hagar belongs to her, not to Abram. And after years of being unable to provide an heir for her husband, the mistress of the household looks to Hagar for a solution. Hagar can be her surrogate. Now, all of what's happening here feels uncomfortable for us 21st century people, doesn't it? But we'll have to reserve our judgment a little. Good or bad, this arrangement was actually all legal in the ancient Near East social structure. Sarai is within her rights, and Abraham knows it, and so he doesn't put up a fight. And Hagar? Well, Hagar doesn't have much choice, and she knows it. She's property, and she has to do the bidding of her mistress, and so she becomes a concubine. Not by choice, but by appointment. How did Hagar feel about all this? Was she devastated at the thought of being used by Abram and Sarai? Was she disgusted by what she had to do? Was there maybe a part of her that was excited or relieved to be chosen as Sarai's surrogate because it would offer her a higher status in the household? We don't know. The text doesn't say. But we can wonder. So Hagar becomes a concubine, but she's also just a young pregnant woman, relying fully on the experience of her body to confirm the viable pregnancy. There was no 3D ultrasound to help it feel real. So in verse 4, when it says that phrase, when she knew she was pregnant, or in another version it says, when she saw that she had conceived, imagine that moment. It likely came the first time she felt her baby kick. That would have been the first moment where she was sure that there was a healthy baby growing in her womb. Unfortunately, the power dynamic at play and Hagar's rise in status in the household as the carrier of Abram's heir, it kind of got the better of her. And she oversteps. She gets a little uh, high and mighty, we might say, and she pays the price. So both Sarai and Hagar act as victimizers here. Hagar disrespects Sarai for not being able to provide the heir herself. And Sarai reacts harshly, wielding her legal rights against Hagar. And ultimately, the result is discord in the household. And the solution is that the insubordinate concubine is shown her place. Hagar flees to the desert to escape harsh treatment. Life at home was made unbearable, probably physically and certainly psychologically. And the system of the law was against her. Slave 
foreigner, woman, pregnant, wandering in the desert. Hagar finds herself completely vulnerable. It could be the end. At the very least, it's going to require a monumental restart. So let's keep reading. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord, who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well was named Bir Lahai Ra'o, well of the living one who sees me. It can still be found between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave Abram a son and Abram named him Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. Amazing. Amazing. This story is absolutely scandalous. Hagar has been wandering in the wilderness along the main road toward her homeland, Egypt, which is where the spring on the way to Shur is located. And the text says the angel of the Lord found her. Scholars agree that this instance of the word for found denotes intention. God did not bump into Hagar on the way to other things. God went looking for Hagar, and God found her. Let's just, could we just pause there for a second and take that in? What does it feel like to be found by God? What does it feel like to be found by God in a moment of our deepest vulnerability and need? What does it feel like to be a pregnant woman without resources at the end of your rope and then to hear God speak your name? I wonder. The question is asked, and Hagar answers only in part, but she answers honestly. I'm running from trouble at home. As for where I'm headed, who knows? And then Hagar, the slave woman from Egypt, gets a promise in a similar style to the promise that Abram received not too many chapters ago. The patriarchal promise of descendants so abundant that they cannot be counted. Abram, the chosen one, and Hagar, the nobody female from outside the family line. Talk about a plot twist. God is not judging Hagar for her predicament. God is the midwife helping Hagar birth a nation. But it will require her to return and submit to her mistress, Sarai. The restart will require surrender to God's way. In response to this encounter, Hagar does something that I think is very curious and seemingly almost out of instinct. Like she doesn't even realize the audaciousness of her action. 
She names God. She uses a name that God has never used to refer to God's self. And the name she chooses comes from her experience of God in the desert. In the Hebrew, it's El-Ra'i. It means a combination of the one who sees me and the one that I see. The one who sees me, I now see. This name epitomizes this special relationship and exchange. God has initiated in Hagar's life, seeing her in her distress, and Hagar responds, God, you see me. Hagar is the only one in the Old Testament who gets to name God. We'll come back to this moment in a bit, but for now, Hagar returns and gives birth to Ishmael, and Abram legitimates Ishmael as his son, as his heir. From there, uh, there's a break in Hagar's story until Ishmael is a little older, and we pick the story back up in Genesis 21, after Abram and Sarai have been renamed by God, and after the birth of Isaac, Abraham and Sarah's firstborn son. The surprise gift to Sarah at 90 years old. No big deal. What we find in this text is a mirror of Hagar's experience in Genesis 16. Sarah gets angry, treats Hagar harshly. Abram steps out of the way, and Hagar finds herself in the wilderness once again. Because we're trying to stay with Hagar's story, um, we'll skip the first few verses of chapter 21. But essentially, Hagar and Ishmael have become a threat to Sarah, who wants her son, Isaac, to be the sole heir to Abraham. And once again, the system of the law, of the law is against Hagar. As the mother of the patriarch's child, Hagar cannot be sold, but it is within Sarah's rights to send the surrogate and her child packing. So Hagar and Ishmael are sent on their way with a bit of bread and water by Abraham, who, to be fair, is very distressed by the turn of events. And the text says that she, Hagar, departed and wandered aimlessly in the wilderness of Beersheba. And when the water was gone, she put the boy in the shade of a bush then she went and sat down by herself about a hundred yards away. I don't want to watch the boy die, she said, as she burst into tears. So it occurs to me that Hagar now finds herself in a spot with God and the promise God has made to her that is actually similar to where Abraham and Sarah were before the birth of Isaac. God had promised Abraham descendants, but both he and Sarah were old and still without children. Had God forgotten the promise made to them? And here, God has promised Hagar that through Ishmael, she's birthed a nation that will have more descendants than she can count. But here she finds herself in a wasteland. No hope. Even her little bit of water runs out after a few days. Death is imminent, not only for her, but for her child. This moment is heart-wrenching, isn't it? Even for those of us who haven't experienced parenthood, the thought of watching your child die of thirst and not having any power to help if this moment doesn't stir our compassion, I don't know what could. The word for compassion in Hebrew is derived from the Hebrew word for womb. Compassion is likened to a womb of mercy. And that's where we should be feeling Hagar's story right now, don't you think? In our womb of mercy. 
promise of many ancestors must have felt impossible, foolish even, she's come to another potential end. Is there another restart waiting for her, for her boy? If there is, it'll have to come from beyond her. Verse 17, the next verse, starts with a but. My very favorite grammatical tool used in scripture, as you've probably figured out by now, because I talk about it every time. But is used to connect ideas that contrast. Death for Hagar and Ishmael is imminent, but... God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven, Hagar, what's wrong? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Go to him and comfort him, for I will make a great nation from his descendants. Then God opened Hagar's eyes, and she saw a well full of water. She quickly filled her water container and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up in the wilderness. He became a skillful archer and he settled in the wilderness of Paran. His mother arranged for him to marry a woman from the land of Egypt. As its own standalone story, we can do nothing but cheer for Hagar at this moment. God sees Hagar and God hears the cries of the boy who he named Ishmael, a name that means God hears. The Lord hears their misery and responds. And I just find God's interaction with Hagar here to be so gracious. God acknowledges Hagar by name again and acknowledges her tears. Hagar, what's wrong? God comforts her with an invitation not to be afraid. And then God speaks to her desperate distress with an affirmation of the promise that was made to her the last time she was found by God. God sees her again. God hears the cries of her child. God still intends for a great nation to come through Ishmael. God restores Hagar's hope, which is symbolized by the well of water that her eyes are now open to so that she can give her boy a drink. The Lord, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Hagar? A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So we need to pause here and step back so we can highlight the larger arc of God's story that has just been articulated through Hagar in a very particular way. This nuance of God's story had to be communicated through an outsider, which she was. Reading about God's chosen people of Israel can sometimes make us forget that God didn't choose Abraham or the people of Israel because they were the only ones he cared about. Let me say that again. God didn't choose or elect the people of Israel because they were the only ones God cared about. And here in Hagar's story, we see evidence of God's commitment to those outside of Abraham's line. Walter Brueggemann says this, Hagar embodies the fidelity of God to the family of faith that persists just outside the primal genealogy of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She functions in the narrative to keep the horizon of Israel open to the other, who also has legitimate claims to make upon the promise of God. Her presence in the tradition precludes the excessive narrowing of the tradition. Hagar is proof that God's redemption plan encircles all of creation. All people 
have a claim on the promise of God to renew all things. Hagar, the Egyptian concubine, holds space for all those who will find themselves outside of the chosen people. Hagar reminds us that the other is welcomed by God. And not only welcomed, but worth being called by name and permitted to name God as they experience God. I'm telling you, scandalous. God, the divine story maker, is weaving a masterpiece. So in all of this, I wonder what might be for us. What are you restarting this month? School? Maybe working at the office or working from home for some of us? Maybe you're restarting sports or other activities. Some of us maybe feel like our restarts are in someone else's hands uh, and they don't look the way we'd like them to. What about spiritually? What does your spiritual fall restart look like? Some of you have restarted attending church, and some of you are maybe still deciding uh, what that means for you and your family. Some of us are maybe restarting with God or restarting spiritual practices and rhythms that went by the wayside somewhere along the path. That happens sometimes. Some of us are doing this out of a renewed commitment and vigor, and some of us are doing it out of obligation and maybe our heart doesn't really feel in it. Can you name your restart experience this week or this month? And as Hagar experienced in her first wilderness wandering, if you heard God call you by name and ask you today, where have you come from and where are you going? How would you answer? I think another of the takeaways for me from Hagar's encounter with the one true God is that, it, it, is that restarts can require my surrender. Now, I need to be really clear here that Hagar's return and submission to an abusive person and situation should not be taken to mean that enduring abusive situations is the right thing to do. God is not making a universal statement about enduring abuse here. And I would even say that God's imperative for Hagar to return is a bit confusing. The text doesn't give us enough information, or at least not uh, that we can get into here today to be clear on this issue. But the text is clear that Hagar's restart involves surrender to God and God's way. And I'm looking for the wisdom in that for us too. Where does your restart require surrender to God and God's way. And finally, Hagar's naming of God is one of the most hopeful moments that I've encountered in Scripture. And it's a moment that is both restrictive and expansive. It's restrictive because it's not an anything-goes kind of moment. Hagar was not making God into her own image. Hagar's name for God, the one who sees me, wasn't her reaching into a personal agenda for who she wanted to make God into. It wasn't a power move. It wasn't manipulative. It was her response to the encounter of God. It named the significance of that moment for her. Hagar responds to the person of God, not even to God's promise. She never even mentions the promise. She knows God now, not just about God. So there's a boundary line, but this moment is also expansive because God lets Hagar make a name for them. God is the initiator, but God welcomes our partnership in response. God invites the unique expression of our experience of God. And others who are experiencing our living God 
need the freedom to name God in response to God's passionate, compassionate action in their world too. If you were to give God a name today out of your experience or encounter of God, what would it be? One of the magnificent ironies, and we're going to end with this, um, one of the magnificent ironies of Hagar's story is that down the road, the people of Israel will find themselves in a wilderness moment a little like hers. And if God found Hagar the Egyptian in the desert, if God heard and answered the wilderness cries of Ishmael, the rejected heir of God's chosen people, how much more? Will God answer the cries of the people of God, of Israel, in their time of need? How much more will God find them in the wilderness and help them restart? And I think I'm saying this specifically for those of us who feel like maybe we're struggling to know God in this season. Maybe it's just one of those dry spells on the journey, maybe being out of practice over the summer or because of the pandemic, has dulled things between you and God? Maybe it's just been a long time since you've felt seen and heard by God. Can I just invite you to lean on Hagar today? And in fact, maybe the homework for all of us this week is to sit in this scripture. Sit in Hagar's encounters with God and let them soften you. Let them disrupt you. Feel the scandal. And let Hagar help you rediscover your longing for the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness the one who sees you. Mm -hmm.